Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. This week, we speak to the mindfulness expert, Ronald Purser. He's a professor of management at San Francisco State University, and he's written a book called Muck Mindfulness, How Mindfulness Became the New Capitalist Spirituality. Daniel, what was the conversation about? So as you say, Ronald Purser is an expert on mindfulness. He's very critical of modern mindfulness, but I should say he's also a longtime Buddhist practitioner, as well as his job as a management professor at San Francisco State University. And his argument in his book, McMindfulness, is that the modern practice of mindfulness is being co-opted and corrupted by big companies to further their corporate goals at the expense of the real message of spirituality and meditation. He was interviewed by Helen Lewis, who's a staff writer at The Atlantic, and we hope you enjoy listening to the episode. And if you do, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us know what you think and helps others to find the podcast. Hello, I'm Helen Lewis, a staff writer for The Atlantic, and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Rom, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Start off by just explaining to anybody who has been living under a rock, actually, which would probably be quite mindful, actually, living under a rock. But what is mindfulness? What is mindfulness? I think that depends whether you're talking about the ancient Buddhist practice of mindfulness or whether you're talking about the more contemporary version of mindfulness, which is now become quite popular in, in culture, in Western culture. It's a therapeutic technique. It's basically a technique that was developed in 1979 by a man by the name of John Kabat-Zinn, and it was developed as a way to treat chronic pain, stress reduction, primarily focused on therapeutic goals. And since then, it's sort of morphed into other uh, variants, such as uh, meditation apps and mindfulness apps and so forth, which you can do in about two minutes, you can do a mindfulness practice and then insert yourself back into the workplace as quickly as possible to run to the bathroom and use a headspace or Buddhify or whatever it may be. So mindfulness is actually a term now that's become so vague and elastic that it's almost like a Rorschach ink block that you can make it mean anything you want. Now even Kentucky Fried Chicken has latched, latched onto it as a commercial for selling uh, chicken pot pies. So it's a phenomenon that has been unleashed. And I, I think a lot of people don't quite know what to make of it. But your book has got quite a particular criticism of it, right, which is that the way that it has developed as an industry is in order to put a sticking plaster on some of the kind of evils of modern life that people feel that they're just, you know, strung out, they're overstressed, they're spending their time on their phone, they're not fully present with the people they're with. And also as a way of saying, you know, if you're suffering from these problems, it's kind of your 
fault and you need to fix it rather than, say, going, actually, have we structured the world of work all wrong, right? Yes, that's really what the critique of, of mindfulness is about, or mic mindfulness, as I call it. Uh, it's an approach where it's been become part of therapeutic culture. So if you have a problem, the onus of responsibility is placed on you as an individual to cope and to adapt to the existing conditions, whatever they may be. So if you're overworked and you're working three jobs or 60 hours a week, uh, you're trying to stitch together uh, a career, you're basically assigned the duty uh, as the individual to, to mindful up to the existing conditions that you find yourself in, whether uh, they are toxic or, or whatever. So that, that is actually what, what I'm, I'm going after in, in, in the book. Yes. No, it's, it's really interesting to me because I've been writing a book on feminism, which makes many of the same criticisms about the way that sometimes feminism is used as a kind of self-help movement, right? It says, you know, actually, women, you need to be more assertive in the workplace. You need to stop saying sorry in emails so much. You need to do this and this and this. And it frames what are often structural problems like, you know, the lack of affordable childcare as things if you just work harder, you think about it, you know, you, you act more like a man, then you can kind of fix on yourself. And so reading the book, I, I've really felt that strong echo that, again, it's about the kind of sense that it is, as you say, a kind of both neoliberal and capitalist. And thank you for the book for having a, a definition of neoliberalism, which I actually understood, which is a rare thing when people talk about neoliberalism. But the idea that you know everything is subordinate to the market and you have to clear away any institutions that get in, in the way of that because that's the best way of assigning fairness. So the book, yeah, combines this criticism with also some really interesting kind of political and economic ideas, I think. Let's go back to the start, though, about this idea that mindfulness kind of gets created out of a Buddhist practice. So for a start, tell me about what the kind of Buddhist conception of mindfulness is or the, the practice that came from originally. Well, Buddhism is a vast uh, uh, enterprise in itself, historically and geographically. So there is no one Buddhism. But in a nutshell, mindfulness was one factor of the eight no Eightfold Noble Path. So it, it was part of an integrated path or plan of action for spiritual development. So it was embedded within an ethical and moral framework, and it was also embedded with teachings on wisdom. So what's happened, actually, with mindfulness is mindfulness, as we know it today in popular culture, is just a very small sliver, even of Buddhist meditation. I think a lot of people now equate Buddhist meditation with mindfulness. But in the Buddhist uh, tradition, there are many, many different approaches to meditation. Some Buddhist schools don't even meditate. Some Buddhist schools engage in, in logic and, and rigorous debate and you know, intellectual analysis. So what we've had now in popular culture is this kind of reductionistic way of thinking about mindfulness as just one single standalone practice. And, and I think that's part of the problem is that what we've seen with mindfulness, it's been taking out of the context of development of of one's character, uh, one's way of being in the world. It's been taking taken out of that context and and reduced into kind of like a physiological, biological technique for reducing stress. And so that can be thought of as the somatization of mindfulness. It's now in the realm of biomedicine. And when it's uh, seen as an intervention, a standalone technique, then what happens is it is all focused on the individual. So bio, the bi biomedical paradigm uh, are about interventions for treatments for individual level problems. 
And so that's why the discourse of mindfulness has uh, sort of been restricted to this idea of self-help. So in that conception of mindfulness, is there much more to it than trying to be present in the moment and meditate a bit, maybe using an app? Is there more, is that, is that what we're talking about really? Right. The idea of, of being in the moment, in the present moment, non-judgmentally, is actually a very modern interpretation of mm-hmm. mindfulness. If you go into the Buddhist canon, the teachings uh, uh, of the Buddha from the Pali canon, uh, there's actually no mention of being in the present moment uh, whatsoever. So it was really a practice that would uh, be focused on challenging uh, the notion that one is a independently existing self that has a sense of permanence and separation from the world. And so the practices were quite rigorous and actually stress-inducing, not stress-reducing, uh, really arousing the mind to challenge the idea that I am a separately existing uh, entity. And, and so that is sort of the wisdom side of mindfulness, which cuts through the, delus- the, the illusory sense of being a, a separate self from the world. And so there's much more to it than just stress reduction. Right. So then let's talk about them, what happened. You mentioned this guy, John Kabat-Zinn, right? This is, uh, this is the kind of founder of MOOC mindfulness, I guess, as you would call it. Who was he and, um, and where did he, did he travel to Buddhist countries? Did he kind of bring those insights back? What, what kind of person was he? Actually, he had a PhD in molecular biology from MIT. Hmm. Uh, he was taking uh, courses uh, and workshops and retreats at the Insight Meditation Center or Insight Meditation Society in Bari, Massachusetts. And he was on a 10-day retreat and had a vision that came to him that, oh, I might be able to use some of these basic mindfulness techniques uh, to treat patients that are having uh, doctors don't know what to do with them. They're having chronic pain, they're having anxiety. And so that was a vision that uh, came to him quite suddenly. And uh, he opened up shop at the, at the, in the basement of the Boston uh, Medical Center. And uh, from there on, it became quite an accepted biomedical alternative medicine intervention for at least 10 to 20 years. But then I think Over time, once it became accepted by the scientific community, because that's the only way that it could be introduced, for example, into state hospitals or into public schools or to receive government funding, it had to be stripped away of any kind of uh, uh, affiliation to uh, Buddhist uh, religion. And so there was a rhetorical strategy that uh, went into the formation of secularized mindfulness by asserting that it's basically we have the essence of meditation. We have Buddhist meditation without the Buddhism. We've, yeah. uh, as scientists, we've, we've sort of appropriated the universal essence of meditation and mindfulness, which I think is, is quite problematic because it assumes then, uh, first of all, as Westerners, that uh, we know best and we can extract what we, what we find helpful and utilize and kind of instrumentalize it for uh, our particular purposes. Now, let me just say that I'm not, uh, I'm not denigrating people who find mindfulness helpful. Mm. I'm not really uh, poo-pooing or uh, criticizing people that get therapeutic benefits uh, from mindfulness practice. But I think we need to be careful in terms of other sort of nefarious uses of of these practices uh, for highly instrumentalized goals such as in corporations and in the military. In, In the U.S. military has been very fond of 
training combatant soldiers before they're deployed to Afghanistan. Right. This is one of the things you mentioned in the book, which I found kind of mind-blowing. And I think, as you say there, you know, if it really was going to kind of be part of a kind of peaceful zen, like you know, they wouldn't be teaching it to the military, right? Because it's 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 not it, that is so antithetical to the teachings of Buddhism. So tell me how, how exactly how is it used in in the U.S. military? Well, there are various uh, mindfulness programs. One that I just found out about was being they were training uh, U.S. special operation forces, which are very high level mm. uh, combatant soldiers. My criticism is not to use mindfulness for veterans, people coming back that have PTSD and so forth. Uh, My criticism is more directed towards pre-combat deployment training. And this is where, for example, they'll put U.S. Marines in a mock Afghan village outside of San Diego, California, and try to simulate the battleground. And and they'll be practicing mindfulness techniques. And so the rationale behind it is that they will optimize uh, warrior performance that's actually the language they use in the Department of Defense uh, industry documents, optimizing warrior performance. And they'll rationalize it that it's a form of harm reduction because, you know, sometimes if you're uh, high on adrenaline as a soldier, uh, you may accidentally shoot a puppy or a children or a child, mm. which is which is, is, is definitely is terrible. Mm. So, uh, sure, but, but a lot of the empirical uh, studies that I've been looking at, they're highly anecdotal in terms of, of – talking about harm reduction and so forth. But again, it kind of comes back to that criticism, which is that I would imagine when incidents like that do happen, they're also something to do with young soldiers who are inexperienced, who don't have sufficient, you know, oversight and command. There's, if you think about things like Abu Ghraib, you know, there are insufficient oversight and, and a lack of strong kind of ethics within those units or people are overstretched and you know t- exhausted they've been you know all of those things which again is not something that sort of 10 minutes of blissing out can really can really solve one way or the other right yeah and and if you look more closely at what these programs are i would not even call them mindfulness programs i would call them attention uh, enhancement training and enhancing one's concentration and attention and that goes back to the notion of how these have become value neutral techniques mm-hmm. instrumental techniques because when you see mindfulness as strictly a physiological phenomena that help people to help people relax or help people de-stress or even help people improve their concentration then they could be used for all sorts of purposes, which is really goes counter to the whole ethical imperative of uh, reducing suffering. You know, I think it's ludicrous to talk about mindfulness in the military, helping a sharpshooter, uh, a sniper shoot more accurately. Uh, I don't think that's reducing suffering. Right. And, and one of the other things you talk about, which I thought was fascinating, was about the idea of an, an industry worth $4 billion, right? This is So there is, not only we talked about apps already, but I was surprised by the sheer number of books about mindfulness, including the mindfulness coloring book, right. which is two of the kind of two of those terrible uh, fashions of modern life, like the idea that coloring books are the way for adults to kind of deal with, you know, not being able to make rent and all these kind of other stresses that they have. And then adding that on, mashing that together with poorly understood concept of mindfulness. But yeah, what, what other kind of books are there out there? Oh, I've, I've seen titles like Mindful Dog Walking, how does one mindfully walk one's dog? I guess just by being... I think dogs are already mindful in terms <laughs> yeah. of the way they walk, so I'm not so sure. But um, there's also books like Mindful Finance, 
mindful sex even. I thought that you mentioned the uh, New York Times business writer who talks, who, who will apply mindfulness to almost any situation. And the one that is him on the subway and he says, this is, I mean, this is, I just feel this is terrible advice to sort of start kind of staring at people and thinking about their lives and, and actually, which just seems to me to be the recipe for kind of getting stabbed as far as I can, or at least getting somebody to, if this is yeah, London, a really like weird, filthy look about, well, why are you looking at me? It's just that we have a, I thought we had a tacit convention that no one looks at anyone else on the underground but so what's the what's that kind of about i think it's it's sort of a feel-good mindfulness sort of tactic i'm not really so sure but i thought i thought it was quite funny as well that was the new york subway where uh, i mean that's probably the number one ground rule have a look at people people in the eye but yeah he had a series of uh of columns uh like being mindful at the dentist office and um you name it uh taking a mindful bath. and um, So I don't know. It, I think it's just part of uh, some sort of silly commercialization uh, that's part of the game in, in the industry. But you're quite nice in the sense that you say that you think in the book most of the people who are pushing this are well-intentioned, right? This isn't lots of rapacious people thinking, ha-ha, here's how I rinse money out of, you know, gullible noobs. Do you, I mean, is that true? Do you think this is mostly people who genuinely think this is a kind of contribution they're making to the sum total of human happiness? I think that's absolutely right. I know many of the people in the movement. I've met many of them. They're nice people. They're very sincere. They believe in what they're doing, totally believe in what they're doing. And I think that's why it's so hard when someone like myself uh, comes out and starts asking critical questions. They take it as a, an offense, a personal offense, which is really not the point. The point is really to interrogate uh, how mindfulness has been co-opted in ways that uh, may not be fruitful for our society. And I think we can aim a lot higher than what's going on right now. As you said, there are 60, 60 to 100,000 books on Amazon with the, either the word mindful or mindfulness in the title. So when an idea like that becomes so popular, I think that's when we have to step back and say, okay, what's really going on? Whose interests are being served by these techniques. Well, let's talk in a minute about your personal interest in the subject, but let's have a quick break. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv i'm back with ron Percy, the author of mook mindfulness how mindfulness became the new capitalist spirituality i want to ask you when did this become a subject that sufficiently irritated you enough that you wanted to write about it and, and what was your connection to it before then uh, i say it's around 2012 2013 i'm a professor of management in the college of business so i have kind of a 
a deep experience base with uh, management consulting. I, I did a bit of it myself years ago. So when I saw corporate mindfulness programs pop up on the radar screen, especially in Silicon Valley, because I live just south of San Francisco, uh, I started taking notice. And I started connecting the dots. What I saw being unfolded, like in companies like Google and Facebook and Apple and so forth, it reminded me so much of of past management interventions or or past fads, corporate fads that have come and gone. And, And my basic concern was how mindfulness was being used to shape the subjectivity of the worker or the employee, to, to subtly shape their uh, sense of, uh, uh, of commitment uh, to keep them focused on corporate goals, to keep them for, focused on being productive employees. And without any kind of ethical considerations whatsoever. So it, it was an approach to, again, make the employee the one who has to adjust, make the, the, the common worker who has to then accept the status quo and, and use these therapeutic interventions so that they can maintain their, their high workloads or the pressure they're, un, uh, they're uh, undergoing in corporations. So that's when I became a, a bit irritated about the movement. But I think it goes beyond that. I'm, I'm also a Buddhist practitioner for 35, 40 years. And, and I was quite surprised, actually. I was quite surprised by how rapidly this, uh, this idea took off in, in culture. But tell me how you came to Buddhist practice, because, I mean, I imagine there are probably more Buddhists per square mile in San Francisco than in lots of places in America, but still can't be that high. Well, I'm not actually from San Francisco, but uh-huh. um, I, I stumbled across it. I, I was very interested in, actually, when I was an undergraduate, I was taking courses in, in religious studies and psychology and everything, and that's, I sort of stumbled across it at, at my age. I'm 63 now. We were reading books by uh, Alan Watts and so forth, which was kind of pop zen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until my mid-20s, late-20s, that I, I sort of found a, an institute in Berkeley, California, and, and then started taking workshops and retreats and courses and became more serious about the study of Buddhism, not just meditation. Uh, I think that's an important point to make, is that Buddhism is is guided by very intense philosophical rigorous intellectual analysis about the nature of reality. And this is a 2,600-year-old tradition that has put a lot of energy into this mm. over the years. It's, it's, it's been characterized by intense debates between various schools. So it's not all about being calm. A lot of people think yeah. that meditation or mindfulness is about being calm, but that's part of it. It's actually just the foundation. It's just the uh, beginning stages of calming the mind. So then you can undertake more penetrating analysis that looks much deeper into the phenomena, our phenomena, phenomenological experience as it arises moment by moment to question where are the source of thoughts? Where are they coming from? What is the nature of the mind? What is the nature of the self? And so these have very intense doctrinal informative that are co-producing meditation. I think what we lose sight of is meditation has always been surrounded by some sort of contextual tradition or some contextual informative pedagogical way of of, of informing why are you meditating? Mm. Uh, what happens when things happen? How do you make sense of them? How do you interpret these experiences? And when it becomes a do-it-yourself standalone technique on an app, there's a vast difference between these two trajectories. But it makes me think it's the kind of classic Silicon Valley optimization theory of everything, right? That you can say, uh, you know, I'm going to um, not eat food anymore because that's actually really inefficient. I'm going to just start drinking whatever is soylent, you know, and then Huel, and then, then you kind of basically 
protein shakes or, you know, there's an app called Blinkist, which basically does very short summaries of books. So it's like, you haven't got time to read Anna Karenina. Let me tell you in five sentences what Anna Karenina is about, which is obviously quite useful if, you know, someone's going to ask you at a dinner party and you're going to go, oh, yes, I love the bit with the train. But not that useful if you want to have the actual emotional experience that comes from reading a novel. And it seems to me this sounds very similar, right, which is about the... Buddhism as a practice is about, you know, as much going through that, that what you learn from going through it rather than just going, okay, what's my 10 minute takeaway of what I can kind of, you know, that I can crunch this down to the kind of distilled whiskey version of what, you know, the, the liquid that I had before. So it does seem, I, I mean, was it, was it, was Silicon Valley where it really, this kind of mindfulness really took off? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, Steve Jobs was sort of the icon of supposedly being very Zen, you know. But yeah, I think it's the spiritual libertarianism of Silicon Valley. Basically, uh, microdosing is, you know, really an in thing now. So this is taking very small amounts small of psychotropic amounts of, drugs. Small amounts of uh, psilocybin or uh, or LSD. So, you know, I, I think I think mindfulness has sort of fallen into that genre of uh, self-optimization. A lot of people talk talk about it as brain hacking or neuro hacking. And again, you know, it, that, that just shows that it's been reduced into a technology, a technology of the self, to be uh, honest with you. It's a, it's a way to subtly shape the subjectivity of the worker to make sure that he or she is, you know, at their top game. You right, know. which is the same thing, I guess, with microdosing. You've moved from the kind of 1960s idea about psychedelic drugs, which is you, you drop out, you know, you take in, you don't need to work, you don't need to kind of live in the rat race, to now, like, I'm going to take very small amounts that will make me feel less depressed and so I can, you know, function at my high level and do my incredibly intense job. And it's just a, it's just a big shift in what, you're, what the point of drugs is, which I suppose is the same as some of the stuff that you're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, there are actually some parallels to, I think, pharmaceutical drugs in, in some ways, because, you know, if you go to a mindfulness course, I was just talking to someone that went through an eight-week uh, classic uh, MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction course. She was extremely stressed out. She was a journalist, by the way, in Amsterdam. And she started bringing up all these issues about what she had to deal with in the workplace and, and why she was so stressed. And the instructor said, well, you know, we really don't discuss those things here. We just like to go back to the practice and talk about your first-person experience about the practice. So in a way, I think there's some parallels to the, uh, to the Me Too movement too, as well. It's like, it's, you know, narratives, our own personal narratives. Oh, no, our thoughts and feelings and emotions, we have to regulate those. Those are sort of seen as uh, undesirable. So we have to be in the present moment. Uh, we can't think about the past, can't think about the future, mental ruminations. You know, it's almost, almost like the Protestant work ethic in a way kind mm -hmm. of upgraded because now we have to like focus on our own personal well-being and health. And that way we can endure the, uh, we'll be rewarded by moving up the corporate ladder and so forth in the corporate world. Right. That was my frustration with what happened with the Me Too movement was that, you know, lots of people shared their stories and these terrible experiences they had, but you didn't get to stage two, which was to me, to my mind, a, a policy response, right? And, you know, how do we support people who want to take a, you know, sexual harassment in the workplace claim forward? In Britain, obviously, there's been questions around, you know, legal aid and funding for it. And it's the idea that it's not just on you to sort of solve this problem, but that there has to be at the state level kind of support for and interventions on that. And I think that's something that I keep seeing in lots of different kind of domains. The other thing you raise in the book, which I think is really interesting, is the, the kind of oddness of tech firms being into mindfulness when they're some, to some extent selling the solution to the problem they've created in that they have, through internet advertising, created an attention economy, which 
prioritizes you know the, the idea for a website is it should be incredibly sticky you should basically never leave that's the ideal website is one that you're on all the time because that makes the most amount of money and you now hear apple talk about time well spent and you know and that kind of stuff but essentially that's a to some extent a tacit acknowledgement that they've created an unhappy unhealthy environment through smartphones and the internet and i suppose mindfulness i see is kind of part of that right because a lot of what you, you know the idea of being in the moment is being not simultaneously your kids are kind of shouting in the background and you're like just tapping out an email or a Facebook update, right? It's it's a counteract, you know, a problem that has been created by technology. Yeah, it's quite ironic, you know, especially when we talk about mindfulness apps that you, you have to turn to an app on your phone that that's... It's the least <laughs> mindful gadget ever created. Right, yeah. and you know, in a lot of these apps, they're selling your data just like any other company as well. And yeah. they, they turn it into almost like a little cute sport you know, to see how many other people are meditating at the moment. Oh, it's 22,000. And, uh, you know, you could share with your friends on social media how many minutes. So it becomes almost a, a game, you know, it's a gamified uh, version of mindfulness. And also kind of macho. I think I remember uh, the Twitter founder, Jack Dorsey, was Going, went on some silent retreat in which he also didn't really eat very much food. It was like meditate. You know, people sort of kind of like I'm meditating for five hours a day. There's a kind of competitive, like you know, I'm so mindful. You know, I like a hipster mindfulness. I've you know, I've been into mindfulness techniques you haven't even heard of. That is again quite antithetical. I would have thought to its origins. Yeah, uh, you know, I think this is a bit of virtue signaling mm. for corporations. Um, it, it reminds me of, of corporate greenwashing yeah. uh, a bit because now, you know, Google Google is doing mindfulness. So Google is must be an angel, must be uh, perfect. This is the thing. This is something that you said in the book, which I genuinely couldn't believe is true. And I'm going to have to trust you this is true because my I, I want it so much not to be true. That Google's mindfulness czar's job title is jolly good fellow. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. If it says that on his business cards, I kind of want to, I mean, that makes me want to just resign from life. <laughs> it's just awful. Well, he's retired now. Um, uh, he at- retired at age 45. Well, I, I mean, I bet he's quite zen then, so, <laughs> because he's probably got an absolute pile of money, which I imagine uh, He has an $8 million right. dollar house in Santa Cruz facing the uh, Pacific Ocean. Yeah, I'd find that quite relaxing. That sounds lovely. <laughs> but so what was his job at, at Google? Uh, I think he worked uh, uh, on uh, mobile email. We're talking about Chari Meng Tang, who mm. wrote the book Search Inside Yourself, which became a best-selling book. Yeah, he was the uh, Google czar for mindfulness and made it very, very popular. And I think that's why it took off so so tremendously in Silicon Valley and other, other companies. And I mean, I, what I took from the book is this is a kind of manifestation of something that you know, is, is is very widespread, this idea about turning problems from being political problems to being personal problems. Has living in San Francisco, you know, which is, I mean, you, correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my perception of San Francisco is, of a, in some ways, an incredibly rich city full of millionaires, some billionaires, but also with a chronic homelessness problem, with a terrible drug problem, with a city infrastructure that is so starkly divided and and a kind of class difference between the haves and have-nots that is exaggerated to an enormous degree. Do you think that has affected how you see politics? It has. It's it's terrible. Uh, a, a lot of my European friends and friends from the UK, when they come over to visit San Francisco, you walk down Market Street or Union Square, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a two-tier society in San Francisco. It's changed. And I think this is somewhat tied to the corporate mindfulness movement in many ways because if you really look at it, the mindfulness movement is an elite social movement. It's not a social movement of marginalized people, for example, like the civil rights movement Mm. or the women's movement. It's been led by elites and elites either in academia or elites in corporations, 
people that have the cultural capital, and they've 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 gained access to all of our institutions, whether it be schools or governments, corporations, hospitals, law firms, Wall Street firms, uh, because they have insiders that they've worked with, and so they've they've worked alongside them with this kind of magical belief that if we train individuals in mindfulness, that we'll be able to miraculously turn companies like Google and Facebook into humane, humanistic, ecologically responsible corporations. Right. As you say in the book, you know, stress has been pathologized and privatized and the burden of it, managing it outsourced to individuals. Which brings me to my kind of final questions, really, which is, can mindful is what's worth saving? You know, what 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 would you take out of the the burning house that is McMindfulness? What what about this practice is good and should be preserved? Okay, I think that the way that mindfulness could be salvaged and reclaimed is that we have to have a social moral vision. It has to be connected to a larger social and moral vision. It's not just me incorporated. It's not just about making me feel good. It's not a privatized spirituality. And so I think we're at a point where we could see new emerging forms of, of the mindfulness movement that are focused on marrying together the need for self-care with the need for social and political change. And are, there are people on the fringes that are already experimenting in this way. And so a friend of mine calls this uh, civic mindfulness or social mindfulness. And, and I think that's, uh, that's a prominent fruitful direction, I think, that we could actually see happening over the next 10 to 20 years. And what has reaction to the book been like? Have you upset some people who have to go and do extra hard time on their mindfulness apps as a result of the, you know, the criticisms that you've made? I've had uh, many, many people uh, tell me either by privately by email or on Twitter that, that I articulated something they couldn't quite put their finger on. And these are more folks that felt that they were told to get with the program, you know, go take this course because you're so stressed out. But, you know, I, th I think there are people that are so devoted to therapeutic forms of mindfulness uh, that, it, you know, I, I, I'm seen a bit of uh, as a bit of, I'm a cultural critic, you know, at heart. I'm not really trying to knock their practice. As I said, I think they're very sincere. But I, I, could, I could see how it could be felt as an affront to what they're doing. Mm. Well, for anyone who wants to read more, the book is called McMindfulness, How Mindfulness Became the New Capitalist Spirituality. And I was joined by Ronald Purser. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much.